Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the possession films of the VHS era. Tonight, we are continuing our nurse theme and also our first Al Adamson movie with 1977's Nurse Sherry, which is also known as The Possession of Nurse Sherry, Hands of Death, Black Voodoo, Killer's Curse, Beyond the Living, and Hospital of Terror. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. God, that has way too many titles. Uh, <laughs> either, anyway, listeners, you can find 1977's Nurse Sherry and all those other titles. Um, but at this point, nowhere on streaming, but if you are creative with searching, you can find it on archive.org. So we should point out right away that there are two versions of this film. One that's like soft core with sex scenes and another that has a um, a subplot about a cult member. We watched the, the latter version. Not necessarily by choice. That's just what we had. Yeah, I have a Japanese VHS of this. Mine is, mine is titled Killer's Curse. I can't read you the back of the box because it's in Japanese, but it's really cool. It's got the scene on the front where Sherry busts out of the shower with the with the two knives in her hands. So this is probably your first Al Adamson movie, right? I'm assuming so. What else has this man done? So a lot. Um, he he's known as sort of a hack, as you know, making really really low budget trash movies for the drive-in. It, especially during the 60s and 70s. He started his career with sort of really low-rent horror movies, uh, Psycho's A Go-Go, Blood of Ghastly Horror, um, the biker movie Satan's Sadists, Horror of the Blood Monsters, Dracula versus Frankenstein. And then he started going into some more softcore exploitation-type stuff, the Naughty Stewardesses, Girls for Rent, Black Heat, Nurses for Sale. And then he did this movie and um, closed out his career with uh, Death Dimension and Bedroom Stewardesses. <laughs> so you I don't know. Does... You can't see it at home, everybody, but he shrugged. He shrugged when he said that. Hey, man, if if you really want to continue nurses another week, we could always watch nurses for sale. No, I I think this theme has outlived its welcome. OK, yeah, I'm ready we, to move we on. Did, we didn't even do it right. You know, week one, w one, maybe nurse week two, zero nurses. <laughs> and then at least this movie has more than one nurse. There's three. I think you're unfairly maligning Death Nurse. I mean, it nurses in the title. And I watched two of the movies, so two nurses. The implication in this topic was that these nurses would be accredited. They, they would have their licenses. <laughs> and we failed. We failed on that front. Got it. Well, I didn't bother look up anyone from the cast except for the cult leader because he was the only actor I thought was interesting. Uh, his name is Bill Roy, and he was only in one other movie, Black Samurai, also directed by Al Adamson, um, in which he plays high priest Augustus Janicott. So this guy had an archetype, I guess. What did you think of his performance? Was he cult leader enough for you? You know, I was going to say he comes off less of a, as a cult leader and more as a televangelist but th then i realized that's like the same thing <laughs> yeah he's credited as preacher but who he's preaching we never really discover well it's kind of it's kind of implied that he's a satanist is it implied yeah i think i feel like a couple times they talk about um him going to hell to serve or something like he's going to serve his master in hell wasn't there a part like that? I don't remember that specifically, but there are some allusions to who he might be worshiping, but it's never it's never stated directly. 
you know, but if you want to hear dark darkness demon and associate that with Satan right off the bat, great. You do you. All right. That's what I'm doing. He does a really good maniacal laugh, which at a certain point in the movie becomes his entire role. He kind of appears as an apparition and maniacally laughs. Like a giant uh, Wizard of Oz head. Yeah. He's even the right shade of green. Yeah. What do you think of the music? Did Did it even stand out to you? The music sounded like it belonged to a movie with a bigger budget. Yeah, I actually kind of like the music. Sometimes it's like like orchestral suspense type music, and then other moments it's eerie theremin. Um, and then there's some song playing while they're in the graveyard, you know, where they're searching for the body that I recognize, but I don't know where I recognize it from. It sounds like the score to another movie. <laughs> Help me remember. I'm just asking for assistance with my my failing faculties. So this movie, it, let's summarize it a little bit for people because we've been alluding to the plot. But uh, it's about a cult leader named Reinhauser, who is played by the guy we were just talking about. And he dies while trying to resurrect somebody else. And his spirit possesses a nurse at the hospital where he dies. And the nurse goes about avenging his death, sort of. It all gets a little murky. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think saying it's murky is um, a bit of an understatement. Because in the beginning of this film, we're sort of led to believe that this doctor just immediately died on scene or at best in the hospital uh, as soon as he got into the emergency room. But then we're greeted to some scenes halfway through the film that indicates maybe he lingered a little bit before he died. So I actually think and either interpretation is totally fair, but my impression was that those were earlier scenes from a previous visit to the hospital. Because I also think he looks younger in them. Wait, what? He looks younger. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think he was I think he at some point in his life, he was in the hospital and nurse Sherry took care of him. And then a second time he was dying and they brought him to the hospital. And so he and Sherry already had this pre-existing connection. All right, I'm I'm looking at these scenes back to back. The intro where we first are introduced to the preacher and him in the hospital room and he looks exactly the fucking same. Except well, maybe a little bit more pale in the hospital. I don't think that totally undermines my theory. Al Adamson probably didn't pay for makeup, but that's what I think's going on. Let Let's me... play the trailer so we can get into this thing. <laughs> Now, for those who have seen The Exorcist, Carrie, and Ruby, here is new unspeakable horror in Nurse Sherry. It's more bizarre, more terrifying than your most frightening fears. Don't miss Nurse Sherry, rated R for adults, under 17, not admitted without parent, from Independent International. So this movie opens on a scene that was filmed later. It wasn't planned initially to be part of the movie. And do you think that this scene is important to like understand the plot? Certainly doesn't hurt, although I'm not sure why we needed to be treated to a bunch of cultists staring into the sun. <laughs> yeah, basically in the beginning we start in like a desert and a dead body is found. And I guess this was a cult member, right? And so all of these people who were members of the same cult convened to try to bring him back to life. And the the cult leader, Reinhauser, insists that if they just chant enough and stare into the sun and wait for weeks, apparently, eventually he'll come back from the dead. So I know we've kind of like 
established, soft established that he is probably uh, demonic. But he, the reason this kid is dead, well, they call him a kid, but he has like a full blown, you know, 70s mustache. The, the, the reason this guy is dead is because the preacher convinced him he no longer needed his insulin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got some Scientology shit here. So, yeah, I, this came off to me right off the bat as some sort of like um, offshoot of like Christian scientists or some shit, right? Like they just do decline any sort of modern medical science. Yeah, I got more of a sense it was just a power trip for him. He was kind of like, to defeat death, all you need to do is follow me. You don't need medicine. You don't need to trust those doctors. Like, it's all about me. That's the sense I got. That would make sense if he was more of a fraud and there was nothing to back his power. But as we soon find out, he does have something going on. But see, that's what's confusing, because in the initial scene in the desert, they never managed to bring this guy back to life, even after three weeks of trying. So it seems like he is a fraud. But then, no, we find out that he's able to, like, transfer his soul after death into somebody else's body. So I don't know. I don't know how much the movie wants us to think that he's a fraud versus legit. We are also introduced to the only other named cult member whose name I don't know. I don't know it either. Bald, what do we call him? Bald cult member? Sure. <laughs> sure. All right. So bald cult member is just like us, Luke. At the beginning of watching this film, he is very skeptical of the master's power. He <laughs> is very upset that the cult leader has essentially caused the senseless, senseless death of one of their followers and is now attracting police attention. It's going well. I think we're near success. Such favorable planet alignment occurs once but every three years. Our faithful are tired. Perhaps we can forego our 24-hour shifts. No. If any one of our brethren is not with William every moment of his journey, that's it. But it's been three weeks now. And I told you it's going well. Don't try and dish out any of that crap to me, Reynauer. You can fool your high-class Beverly Hills bitches with that astrological charts, seances. But as far as I'm concerned, you can take your pentagrams and shove it. You know what you did? You committed a crime, and you're going to pay hard time for it, and I'm not going to share that time with you. Convincing that boy and his mother that he didn't have to take insulin to save his life. You know, we were doing fine with that high society circuit before you pulled this number. The boy doesn't need insulin. No, he doesn't anymore. He's dead. You got it? You made a grandstand play and you struck out. Now, how the hell are we going to get out of this? By bringing William back to life and having him walk once more with us in our great work. I'm performing a miracle. How dare you suggest fraud? My friend, you and the world will soon know that I possess powers that you haven't even dreamt of. This is a good point to ask. What do you think of the dialogue in this movie? Passable? I'm not very closely paying attention to the music now that you mentioned that we, we drew so much attention to it earlier. Yeah. And this does not sound like conversational music at all. This is like something you would listen to, to, to Conan traveling the fucking desert with his caravan. Yeah. I was thinking Jason and the Argonauts. Like yeah. <laughs> it, it, when I said earlier that I thought it was good, that didn't mean it matched to the movie. It, it it often does not. Although I think the haunting theremin music does. I will say this man, this uh, preacher, has the best dialogue in the entire film. Not that that's a high bar to to, to jump over, but it's, it's that that's there. You know, it's good. It, it's very theatrical. It does not sound like dialogue from 1977. It sounds like dialogue from 1950. That's the way it struck me. Anyway, maybe the 60s. This preacher 
and I what I'm assuming is just his last gambit to make this shit work is now standing over the body of his cultist, who at this point has been decomposing in the desert sun for three weeks. And although he doesn't look like like the makeup's not convincing that he's, you know, been decaying for three weeks, he looks pretty rough. He looks pretty yeah. rough, man. He, he doesn't he, look okay. It looks like a really gross powdered donut. Yeah, he kind of reminds me of the blue David Bowie zombie from uh, The Video Dead. <laughs> And so this preacher puts on a big old dog and pony show, has like a little goblet and a dagger, and he dips the dagger tip in the goblet, and he says some shit, and he raises it up into the sky, and then allegedly goes into cardiac arrest. Cue yeah. the ambulance. Yeah, all the all the the cult members are chanting, Rise, William, rise, like it's a revival, you know? And uh it doesn't work. Man, imagine imagine one of these cultists like recanting this life experience, their therapist. Yeah, and, and then that's when I just stopped being a Satanist. <laughs> it would shake your faith, right? A little, yeah, just a little bit. I mean, it, it, one thing, they don't seem that trusting to begin with. When he tells them they have to stay out there in the desert until like it works, they seem pretty doubtful. But he manages to talk him into staying. And they're all wearing like business suits in the desert. It looked miserable. Well, not not the cultists necessarily. Some of them had like muscle shirts and, you know, regular ass 70s people clothes. But well, Reinhauer and the 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 guy whose name we don't know, bald cultist, bald cult um, member, <laughs> they they wear suits. Yes, and I do. felt sorry for them. Yeah. Yeah. And and think, man, this was before cell phones, before bottled water. Yep. <laughs> this would have been miserable. Yep. So he's taken to the hospital, and we see a group of doctors and nurses trying to revive him. And maybe it's realistic, but this scene, especially when he's like struggling to come back to life, seemed really silly to me. It seemed really ridiculous. Nothing about this movie accurately portrays how hospitals work on any level. Any. Not a single one. Probably death nurses more <laughs> medically accurate than this film. At least really death nurse. Something. I mean, death nurse was a, wasn't about a hospital. It was about like a, reco a, a recovery clinic or a halfway house sort of thing. So at least it wasn't trying to be a hospital. This is trying to be a hospital. And I don't think it was filmed in a hospital, do you? Mm, probably not. This looks it like looked, it was this looks like it was shot in some sort of uh, government building during <laughs> during closing hours. It looks like an office building. You know, it, okay, so like there's a lot of walls in like if you I don't know if this is like purely an American thing, but in a lot of government buildings in America, you have this generic like brick wall that's completely painted white and it's like the most soul-sucking boring shit you can see and that wall is present in so many scenes in this hospital yeah that's why it, i think it was probably shot in some sort of public building yeah i don't know wherever al adamson could get it cheapest is his reputation but let's talk about the first meeting between our main characters, Nurse Sherry and her boyfriend, who is also a doctor there, whose name is Peter. And he comes up to her. His, he's wearing <laughs> these bloody gloves and he tries to touch her. Blood from the, pa the patient that just coded out in front of him. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Uh, no uh, sanitation considerations at all. I mean, even in, in the 70s, this was pretty grody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And at least the nurse Sherry is like, no, go shower in formaldehyde before you come touch me. Which the way she says it, it sounds like, you know, she's shutting them down. But no, turns out they're dating. Yeah, she's... um. A lot of her line readings are very odd. They make whatever she's feeling sort of confusing. 
but interesting. I like her performance, oddly enough. Did you recognize her from anything else? No, did you? So she looked familiar, but I couldn't put my finger on it. So I went to her IMDb, and she's in an episode, an important episode of Deep Space Nine. Oh, I never watched that. It's, in my opinion, the best Star Trek show, but uh, you you ain't really a Trekker, so I wouldn't worry about it. Either way, what I found fascinating about um, this woman's IMDb is that she has an extended list of credits. She's been in a lot of stuff, but uh, Jill Jacobson has absolutely no profile or anything about her normally you know if you have some sort of a storied career in acting you got some sort of bio up you have you know contact for your agent all that stuff nothing none of that so let's see she probably played really small parts that would be my guess i'm looking over her her resume now and i don't see anything i recognize a lot of TV episodes, it looks like. But this was her first film. This was the start of her career. And she survived it. That kind of amazes me. But we also need to talk about our other couple in the movie. All right, so there's this guy, Marcus. He's a football player. And he was blinded in a freak car accident. And... He's just become a patient at the hospital. And one of Sherry's friends, another nurse there, Nurse Tara, has looked up to this guy her entire life. Like, he's a a hero of hers. And so she's automatically really interested in him. What do you think of these two? Her interest in football is very forced. (laughs) And I don't think it was necessary... To, to really start the chemistry between these two. No, they but, really bond over football. But, and, and, but, you know, honestly, I wish the movie was more about these two. <laughs> these two are infinitely more interesting than anyone else in the film. Yeah, we find out that that Marcus has a, a Haitian grandmother who knew voodoo and... He's got a a charm bracelet that protects him against evil. Like, he's the most interesting character in the movie. But, yeah, we don't get a whole lot of him. In the first scene, he's just really, like, bitter about not being a football star anymore. And he just wants Tara to leave him alone. But he apologizes pretty quickly, and they become a thing. And he said we don't get much of him, but... I think we get more of him or just as much than and than as we see with the uh, nurse Sherry. Yeah, let let me clarify. We get quite a bit of screen time with him. It's just we don't learn very much about him. I mean, yeah, I guess, but like aside from he plays football and his grandmother was into voodoo, we don't know anything about him. I could tell you nothing about his personality. So yeah, he he's written as a side character. Football voodoo uh blinded. <laughs> like that's that's what you get. But right. I really wish the movie was just about these two. I could imagine like a spin-off. We could write the spin-off movie to Nurse Sherry. Uh, I don't... <laughs> I'm sure there's a market for it. Dude, I think you'd have better luck just writing your own your own medical horror romance involving characters that are basically the same too. just change the names. Yeah. Let's talk about the scene where nurse Sherry gets possessed. It Um, doesn't feel like a possession. No. In fact, the preview, the preview that we listened to before we started talking, before we dived in, you know, brings up the exorcist. What is Harry? Carrie, it brings up Ruby, which we haven't seen yet, but is probably probably in our sights at some point for a future episode. But that's not the kind of possession you see here. You see some technicolor green shit creak under a door, go under her bed, and that somehow is indicative of a possession. 
Well, we also see a bunch of flashes of green light that are like mixed with images of Sherry. Some of them are nude. Some of them like I got the impression that these were going to be scenes throughout the movie, but there's scenes that aren't even in the movie. I I know this is really like absurdly low budget and it looks cheesy, but I kind of liked it. I kind of liked the glowing green blob. It definitely does not look like 70s special effects. It looks like si- early 60s special effects. Like I would expect to see this sort of thing in like the original Star Trek. Yeah, there's there's a movie called Fiend, a Don Dohler movie that I think a lot of our listeners probably know. And it has a possession a possession scene in it that's very similar to this. And that's what I thought of. But I like Fiend a lot more than I like this movie. But I did kind of like this. It was charming to me. There's there's a third couple, a patient named Charlie, who has to have some kind of operation, but we don't know what it is. Um, at least I don't think we do. And there is a um, another nurse, Beth, who helps him relax. And uh, she says she wants to get a rise out of him. And we see him. We see her strip naked and start to rub and kiss all over his big sweaty body. This was <laughs> this this was really forced to me. Uh, yeah, and um, I think this was the same scene where, yeah, she gives him a thermometer, but uh-huh. he puts it in his mouth the wrong direction. <laughs> you clearly see the red tip go in mouth first. I didn't even notice that, but I was watching on my fuzzy VHS tape. Uh, <laughs> if you watch the uh, the the version, you can find on archive.org that you see it clear as day. Well, if it, based on this movie, you would think that at hospitals across America, every patient who arrives gets their own nurse who becomes a romantic interest. I don't know. That might be setting unrealistic expectations for your viewers. At least that would somehow kind of legitimize the exorbitant cost of healthcare in America, but we don't even get that. Oh, God. We get nothing for what we pay. Nothing. So, oh, hell. I don't even know where to go. Well, why don't we talk about, because this is about the time where we start with the subplot about bald cult member trying to track down his master's body. This he is went, definitely not the movie we want to do scene by scene. It ain't worthy of that. <laughs> no. So let's just talk about this as an entire side plot. This was apparently added as a as an alternative version to the softcore version. I don't know which one was shot first or who made what decisions, but this is the side story we get in this version of the movie. What'd you think of it? So apparently, you know, there's the two versions. You either got the side story or you got to see more tits. I don't know which one was the better deal. But we aren't limited to just a couple extra dialogue scenes, right? That's what starts as. And and then it does get into like a crazy, well, for this movie, crazy high action uh, sequence, which I have some thoughts about, but we'll get to it. Yeah, I think the main purpose for the existence of this side plot is to show us car chases and to show us like crazy floating head and some action scenes at the end. I think it's just an excuse to like you haven't seen other Al Addison movies, but they're all like this. They're all very disjointed and it feels like he's trying to shoehorn in car chases and things that don't belong. But I thought for the most part, this side story was okay. I thought the actor that played the bald guy was pretty good for this. Yeah, movie. he's what would you say? He's like second best actor after the cult leader. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's all right. So, he, you know, he at the ritual, he's dressed in a suit. He's fancy. He's put together. But when we see him again, he's a fucking wreck. He's drunk. He has alcohol everywhere. He lives in like a small studio apartment where he has like dinner from nights ago, sitting on fucking tables with like scraps and bones. He's his life has fallen apart since the death of his cult master. 
Yeah, I really didn't understand um, the destitution that we see unless all of his like success before was due to the cult master. Could unless be. like you Satan know, was giving him things. You know, there's the, the saying, you know, dress for the role you want, not for the or the job you want, not the, the job you have. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe he's just trying to look fancier for the for the <laughs> for the failed resurrection. Maybe. But yeah, maybe if our, yeah, if our Dark Lord Satan sees this, you know, bomb ass suit, maybe, maybe he'll bring what was the dude's name? Rise. That's Rise William Rise. No, nah, William was not worthy. No, I maybe that was the problem. Will William was not dedicated enough to the cause. Satan just did not want to bring him back. Well, he also says something like Reinhauer says something like it won't work if the participants don't believe and they don't look like the most believing group to me. They look pretty suspicious. Well, yeah, they're being told to stare into the sun and chant the same shit for three weeks. It's hard. It's hard to keep your morale up. So when we see this guy again in his apartment, it is clear the movie wants us to see that he is being haunted by his dead master probably because of his last minute change in faith before the resurrection. You know, maybe they could have made a bigger plot point out of this. They could have been like, yo, you are actually the reason your faith wavering is the reason why William didn't rise. Yeah. Cause it's really unclear why Ryan Howard is going after him, except maybe just to be petty. Cause this is again, you know, this, this cultist did kind of tell him off right before he had a heart attack. Yeah, but even after, so he tells him off, and then Reinhauer is like, you know, fuck you, you can stay or you can go. I don't care. And he stays. He stays to, like, be there for the ritual. So, I don't know. He, it didn't seem like he did anything that egregiously bad to be, you know, haunted and driven to death. So, in proper poltergeist fashion, Cultist throws Brown a lot of shit in the living room. Plates, lamps, furniture, everything. I guess it's a sign of, uh, I guess it's a scare tactic. You know, big old fuck you. This is the rest of your life having to clean up after this shit. This is the only scene we see anything like this. The only scene, yeah. Um, but somehow this dot, this uh, cultist gets it into his head, or maybe he knows this from prior knowledge, that in order to stop his master from coming back, he has to destroy his buried body. So he looks, he decides to find the body by doing what anybody would going to the hospital where the patient died and then harassing the medical staff until they tell him like they're <laughs> supposed to know. Right. <laughs> right. If you're, if you really want to find out where someone is buried, this is not the way to do it. The hospital will probably not have that information. I was going to say, does a hospital even keep that on file? Like this, the place of burial. At best, you might get funeral home information if they turn the body over to somebody because, you know, they need proper documentation for that. But then your best bet would be to harass the funeral home, (laughs) see where they buried the body. Yeah, it's um, it seems very misdirected. So he gets fucking liquored off his ass for no reason and harasses Dr. Peter in the parking lot who has not taken his shit. Peter's doing his own thing right now, trying to make sure his girlfriend's not cheating on him or something. (laughs) (laughs) And this culminates into the cult leader getting into a car chase with Peter. They go straight from the city into the desert. There's a lot of weaving in and out of traffic. And in the middle of it, cult master as a floating head shows up and cuts the brakes. What did you think of this as a chase scene, like within the pantheon of chase scenes? I would say that it is a chase scene. And after the breaks are cut, there's a point where the cultist drives off the road, right? And we see very clearly in the shot, it's open desert, a ramp in the desert up into a cinder block gray wall. Top of the car at this point has been ripped off. <laughs> so it is basically an impromptu Cadillac. And 
this looks like a really dangerous stunt that would not fucking fly today. This guy literally drove the car at the brick wall and this just jumps out of the car. This is no camera trickery. They just they just did it this way. It's and it's I am, fairly impressive stunt work, honestly. But I am positive that the original plan was that they wanted this car to hit that brick wall. Instead, it veers off to the side and dodges the wall. <laughs> you really think so? I figured it was try it was the intention to dodge the wall so they could show the exploding car. I think that was the backup, or they wanted to show it go through the wall and then down the ravine and explode. Why else would you set up a giant like cinder block wall in the middle of the desert and have the driver jump out before it if you didn't want the car to go through it? Yeah, I thought it was just an excuse for the the car to, to swerve the other way. Well, I, no, I really didn't know. Nobody's in the car at that point. I don't think they expected it to swerve. And I have a feeling that when it went up that, that ramp, it probably blew out the suspension was no longer drivable. So in the next scene, when we see it careen into the valley and explode, they probably just pushed it off. Well, regardless, of trying to shoot it again. Regardless, it's it's pretty good stunt work for like a super low budget movie. Yeah. I, and that's probably the best thing you can say about this film. Yeah. If you know, if if you want to get a movie together on the cheap and you know, film it for a buck and and make some money on the drive-in circuit. This is a better way to do it than Death Nurse, because they're both kind of going for that niche market, right? Let's make a really low-budget movie on the cheap. Although this probably has a higher budget than Death Nurse. You think? <laughs> uh, not a whole lot more, but yeah. I mean, I could admit I could make Death Nurse tomorrow, and I'm fucking broke. Yeah, no, this movie costs way more than Death Nurse. Like, that car chase scene alone probably costs the same as Death Nurse. Yeah, but, you know, relative to other pictures, that we're dealing with low budget. But he's, So he survives. He manages to jump out of the, the car before it careens off the cliff. So then instead of deciding to harass the doctor, he does the more logical thing. Burglary. He breaks into the hospital cracks open their their one filing cabinet and gets the records for this one patient which tells them where the guy is buried allegedly so then we're treated to him going out getting the body and taking it to what a iron smelting plant i couldn't figure <laughs> out what this is it looks like molten lava is like just oozing down down into these big barrels or pits i am positive this is just like a smelting factory and uh they have all the tools running this guy goes to a furnace throws the body like fucking heaves this shit is actually incredible how how far he eats this body <laughs> right into the furnace um and then reinhauer's laughing face appears as an apparition and can we just play what he says? <laughs> you always were a fool, Stevens. <laughs> like uh the amount of laughing here is uh <laughs> it points to what's probably the biggest problem with this film and that is uh, a lot of scenes go on way longer than they should i think it was for time reasons i there's not enough story here to 
fill the runtime of a movie. This this movie probably could have been like an hour ten and have been fine. Instead, it's a whole hour and a half. And to illustrate this further, right? Like when the pastor first dies at the hospital, or I should say before he even dies at the hospital, and while he's being transported, there's a very painfully long sequence of the EMTs taking his body out of the ambulance, putting him on the stretcher and wheeling him inside. And it is not done stylistically. Like it's not shot stylistically. There's nothing interesting about how they decide to show it. It just looks like two men doing their job for like five minutes. And it's yeah. something as minor as this. It it could be that that Al Adamson was trying to drag it out so it could be a feature length runtime, or it could be that like Nick Millard, he just doesn't have a good sense of when a scene should end. It, it maybe it's just ineptitude. Was, but to go, there, like, do you think there's like a specific time to qualify for feature length as a definition? Yes, I know there is. I'm not sure what it is. But I know there is um, it to like to get into theaters, you had to be a certain length. Oof, that explains it. Yeah, but um, to go back to the scene at the iron smelting place, after this apparition laughing at him, does bald guy just hurl himself into the pit? I think he's lunging at the hallucinogenic head, trying to catch it for some reason. <laughs> And uh, in the process, heaves himself over the railing right into a vat of molten metal. Yeah, I couldn't figure out if he was like willfully committing suicide or if it was an accident. I mean, this man was also turnt as fuck, right? Like he has not been sober since the first time we've seen him. True. That man, the man always has a flask on him. Maybe if I was being if I was being haunted by this guy. I would need some escape as well. That could have been like a cool lore thing to throw in there. Like maybe being drunk as fuck makes it harder for you to be haunted. By like oh, a, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're like, you're not all your faculties are there. So they can't take advantage of that. I think we could that's sit way, down. That's way too deep for this movie though. <laughs> I think you and I could sit down in a room and in an hour come up with like a dozen ways this movie could have been more interesting but they obviously did not have that creativity session. There's a there's another kind of subplot about Sherry's boyfriend thinking that she's cheating on him because she's acting weird. What did you think about this? Do you think men were more possessive in the 70s? Yes. Yes. I think this is just like um a portrayal of that toxic masculinity element of the 70s where if maybe if they have any suspicion whatsoever they just immediately assume the worst i think they just wanted to portray him as like a man of science you know where he he there has to be a rational explanation for why she's acting so strangely and the only thing he can come up with is maybe she's having an affair but there's a scene where he comes home or goes to her apartment and asks her outright if she's seeing someone else. The initial accusation or suspicion of <laughs> Sherry cheating is because she forgot to go to lunch with her work or her coworkers. <laughs> right. That's <laughs> so fucking absurd. Like, does he think that she went to meet somebody else for lunch? I'm assuming so. It like, is weird because they are talking about going to lunch and then like they're only I got the impression they were talking about going in like 10 minutes, but then she didn't show. But my first question would not be, did you go to lunch with somebody else? It would be like, hey, what happened? You know, we're never shown. Yeah, we're, you know, we're never shown what she was doing instead of getting lunch. But about 10 minutes later is when we start getting the first murders of the film where as you know a possessed uh, murderer she is uh, starting to visit doctors who have offended the pastor while he was living 
and uh, she just starts killing them off one by one. This first guy is uh, stabbed through the midsection with a pitchfork on his ranch. There's another doctor who gets stabbed with a knife. And I think Peter is supposed to be the third one up. Yeah. What? Well, she tries to she tries to kill. Um, what's his name? Marcus. But she can't because of the bracelet he's wearing. There's something about this this uh, this voodoo bracelet that really acts as what you would expect a crucifix to do to a vampire. And when he describes it, he says it's a bracelet with the faces of demons on it, which is why I'm surprised that you know we're supposed to believe that this guy's like a Satan worshiper because why would that stop him? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I also don't know why he wants to kill Marcus to begin with. I think it's just kind of shoehorned in there so that there's like some suspense that he might kill someone that's like likable and someone we might actually know the name of because these doctors are just nameless guys in white coats that get off. Yep. But in that scene where the doctor confronts Sherry about seeing someone else, can we play the scene where she becomes possessed? Stay where you are. Don't interfere with things you know nothing about. You look bewildered, Dr. Desmond. You're not as smug as when we last met. Not as complacent. But then, what can you expect from a man of science? Hours of science are finite. Mine are limitless, as you come to know. So what do you think of her when she pl- when she becomes possessed? What do you think of her performance? I mean, it, just to illustrate to anybody who hasn't seen this movie, it's basically just her standing there mouthing the words and then they dub the 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 the, the, the preacher's voice over it. That that's all it be. There's no special effects, you know, she doesn't turn her head 360, she doesn't vomit halfway across the room. That is all you get. Yeah, which it's it's not the movie calls it possession, but it's not really like any possession we're familiar with. It's more like he's controlling her telepathically. Because these scenes where he takes over, she doesn't even remember them. Yeah, and uh, and it's not like all the time. It's infrequent. Yeah. Because part of the suspicion, like why everyone thinks she's being weird is because she does weird things and then she says she doesn't remember them. And they're like, well, how can you not remember this thing that happened five minutes ago? I think they would have tried to get her like a medical evaluation sooner than they do. Oh, yeah. Dr. Peter just brushes this shit off real quick. (laughs) Well, he thinks she's being weird because she's having an affair. That's why she's talking in a man's voice and disparaging his career. <laughs> well, after the after the talking in the man's voice thing, he does go to see somebody, but it's the movie's not clear about who he is. I think it's like the hospital's psychiatrist, psychologist, somebody with a fancy degree on the wall. I just wasn't sure who this was, but yeah, I think he's a I think he's a psychiatrist that works at the hospital and they do talk about what's going on with Sherry, but they don't resolve to do anything. No, he's pretty hands off with it. And uh, Dr. Peter over here is very clearly too close to Sherry to make the right judgment call. I mean, what the right judgment call looking at this from the outside, right? Like, obviously, if he knew and believed in possession, we would know, okay, there's something supernatural going on here. She doesn't need to be put to an asylum. But, you know, he's a man of science. He should, his first inclination should be, clearly this woman is disturbed and we need to put her somewhere to figure out what exactly is going on and what kind of medicine we need to give her to, to tone it down. Yeah, is this the same uh, scene? Is this the same guy that in a later scene says if it was the 17th century, he'd diagnose her with possession? Yeah, he is the guy that goes off on that, right? And he starts like quoting from fucking literature descriptions of vampires for some reason. Uh huh. Yeah, that was totally unnecessary. He did say also as a as a an aside. I fucking hate it when you have a character in any script that just starts quoting like 
shit right out of a book. It's pe- something people don't do. People don't do that. I think it's I'm not, just I'm not in- talking about like a quote, right? I'm talking about like a paragraph with like five semicolons in it. And some guy will just like blab it out to make some sort of point that the that the director wants. I, I think that's the key. The director wants it. I think it's just about the director getting to quote things he appreciates. Yeah. Shit sucks. Stop doing that. Um, can we talk about Sherry's apartment? Cause I fucking love it. <laughs> sure, she's got go off, man. What's that? I said sure, go off. <laughs> she's got a beautiful all beautiful mid-century furniture hanging glass lamps wallpaper in every room like nice vintage wallpaper even her shower door is wallpapered did you notice that no i'm gonna check the historical record right now you can see it in the scene at the end where she oh busts out of the yeah, shower. yeah yeah i've i don't know why i didn't notice that before have you ever seen that before no, never. That seems like a terrible idea. <laughs> it does. It seems absolutely horrid, but it looks cool. If, you know, if listen- looking at looking at it now, you know, as the doctor is pulling back the door, it's cu- clearly covered in blood. Like there's blood splatter all over it. Uh-huh. But I didn't notice it the first time I watched this film because it's the same color as the fucking ferns and the wallpaper pattern. <laughs> I did find that very odd. Well, clearly this house was wallpapered before they decided to use it in a film. And like, what are you going to do? Like re re wallpaper a shower door for one gore scene? Yeah, no, this was uh, wallpaper in this setting setting was not a good idea. But I do appreciate all of the interior decor of this apartment. Uh, If listeners don't know, I'm really into mid-century furniture and art and this this is like a time capsule here and i just it was my favorite element of the movie was this apartment what what should we talk about next the end (laughs) okay (laughs) all right so so let's so let's get to the ending after the failed attempt on marcus's life marcus explains to the rest of of the hospital staff that his grandmother told him a long time ago that the best way to to get rid of a demonic possession was to burn the body of the one who is causing the possession. The definition of demon here is very loose. They just throw it out there because in this case, this guy ain't a demon, right? We're never really treated to that. Yeah, not that we know of. Yeah. At at best, he's maybe a warlock. I will say this whole thing where he's telling us this information it's all redundant because we already heard this from the other guy, right? He just happened to burn the wrong body. Yeah, but the hospital staff didn't have any relationship with that guy. So I'm not saying it's illogical. I'm just saying it's bad movie crafting. I don't think you want to waste like 20 minutes of your movie trying to accomplish something which goes nowhere and then replicate the exact same attempt at the end of the movie. It can work, but there's probably a better way to do it. Yeah. Either way, you know, let's let's not let's not split hairs here. We're almost done. Um, nurse Tara and Beth volunteer to go to the graveyard where this preacher is actually buried. I'm not even sure how the guy got the wrong body in the first place. No but idea. They know where the right one be. And while they are finding the body dr peter's trying to get a hold of uh sherry to make sure she, she doesn't murder anybody else after a very lengthy adventure through a very very fake looking graveyard <laughs> they find the body and burn it just in time to keep sherry from murdering peter with a dual-wheeled, like, meat cleaver setup. (laughs) I will say, I really liked that entire sequence where Peter is in the apartment and he keeps calling for her or the nurse because he got her a private, like, psychiatric nurse. And 
he's wandering around looking for her and he can't find her and he sits down on the couch and then we see that her body the nurse's body is crumpled up next to the couch but it was kind of hidden by the love seat so you couldn't see it and then he goes into the bathroom and the door slams shut and he opens the the shower and sherry pops out with the two knives and she's all bloody and i thought this was pretty effective this was the best part of the movie to me really this over the car chase yeah because i thought this was the most the best horror element of the oh movie. that's right we're watching a horror film <laughs> it's supposed to be <laughs> supposed to be but yeah so every he saved all is good except we see at the end that I think it's the lawyer or something for the hospital is saying that they can probably avoid prosecuting the girls who dug up the body, but they can't. Uh, Sherry's got to be prosecuted. And so we see her locked in a bare room in a straitjacket. And I found this ending like immensely sad and disturbing. But I have a thing with mental hospitals and like being confined when you're not mentally ill and so it was probably just me. It probably would have bothered me if the characters were more fleshed out and I liked this movie. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I feel like the movie doesn't earn that ending. Like the fact that I'm disturbed by the sight of a young girl locked in a room in a straitjacket and like I know she's going to be condemned to a horrible experience in a 70s mental hospital. Like that's really upsetting to me, but it doesn't match the rest of the movie. The movie doesn't earn that emotional punch at the end. If it makes you feel better, the hospital she's in will probably get like defunded in five years and then she'll be let loose on the street to be homeless. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe she was better off being possessed by Reinhauer. Well, but Dr. Peter couldn't have that, huh? No. Because he thought she was cheating. Possessive. All right, let's give final that's the, thoughts. That's the, real, that's the real possession right there. <laughs> the masculine possession. That's what this movie should have been called. <laughs> All right, let's give final thoughts and a rating out of four. Um, you know, this movie has has everything that would make it a classic compared to other things we have reviewed on this show. But there's just something about, well, I shouldn't say there's just something about the execution. There is, There are many things with the execution that really snatches defeat from the jaws of victory. Like you have buxom nurses, you have fucking Satanism, murder, and racial tension. And somehow all of this shit does not combine into a movie that's that entertaining to watch because there are scenes that are way too long. There are these characters, unfortunately, just lack substance. And it just cannot be saved by her awesome apartment. Like, it can't be saved <laughs> by... <laughs> like, how bad do you have to fuck up? <laughs> To make it so that a wallpapered shower door doesn't save your movie. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you haven't seen this and you're just going off our description of it, we probably are making this sound way more exciting than it is. But the truth is that this movie goes on for an hour and a half. The first murder doesn't happen until well over a half an hour in. And... Uh, really it drags this movie drags i'm i'm not i don't i'm not sure if you said this at the beginning of the podcast or before we hit record but but luke said that this movie reminded him of frozen scream and this is basically a better version of frozen scream but it's the same pacing the same pacing as frozen scream just slightly better and i i lament this but i'm gonna have to rate this like one star just because even though all of the elements of a great like 70s exploitation film are there they just don't assemble properly like imagine if optimus prime turned in from like, went from like semi to like a quadriplegic that's what you're seeing here it's sad 
Yeah, see, doesn't a movie like this make a movie like Horror Hospital seem like a masterpiece? You know, <laughs> I mean, we rated Horror, Horror Hospital pretty good. But, um, yeah. Especially like a fucking masterpiece compared to this. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of this movie. Like Leland said, there are a lot of cool elements, and I think there are a couple of really good scenes. Like, I think that sequence in the house at the end, the apartment, is a really good scene. And I feel this way about most of Al Adamson's movies that I've seen. There's, like, really good scenes, but they're lost in a midst of just boring, drawn-out, low-budget nonsense. And this is one of the better Al Adamson movies I've seen. So that's it's really not saying very much, um, at least nothing much positive about Al and his filmmaking abilities. Um, but, you know, if I had gone to a drive in and seen this, I probably would have had a pretty good time because at a drive in, you're not paying 100 percent attention to the film. Like you're making out with your girlfriend and you're grabbing snacks from the snack counter and going to the bathroom. And so you don't really have to follow a plot. You just want to see a car chase now and then, a sexy girl now and then, a violent scene now and then. And so I can see why Al Adamson had success on the drive-in circuit. I just don't think it works as a movie you sit down in your living room to watch. I did it in three sittings um, because at Leland's right, it really drags. Um, but I don't think it's a terribly made or acted film. I didn't hate watching it. Um, I I actually cared a little bit about the characters so i'll give this one and a half this is one of those films where you have the credit the writing credits be like one guy for the idea but then it took like two completely different people to write the script <laughs> and it just fucking floors me every time i see that for a script of this caliber like it took two people to write this Beautiful. This really, this movie was just one script rewrite away from being great. Yeah, it could have been good. It's it sucks because this film had so much potential. Well, next week we're moving on to a new theme. So let's whip out the magic eight ball and find out what kinds of movies we're gonna be doing for the next few weeks. Leland, you want to remind us of the rules? All right. So we have a long ass list various topics we're gonna pull three of them of these topics luke will have to choose one a theme that will dictate the next probably two to four films that we'll watch assuming we can find something along those lines and then if he wants he can take one of the other topics and completely remove them from the list all right, so let's shake up the eight ball and find out what our three picks are this week. All right, our three categories are one xenophobic cannibalism movies two films revolving around esp specifically telepathy or telekinetics bonus points for you know exploding heads but i think there's only one film that has that or topic number three elections you know what let's go with elections because i, I my mind is brewing and i'm thinking of some ideas now like they don't necessarily have to be you know, elections in government. There's all sorts of elections that can happen. It could be like a council or a, like a cult making a decision, but there has to be some sort of election process. Okay, brilliant. Let's go with elections. I have some ideas and uh, I'll give you a list in a little while. All right. And do you want to remove either of these categories that are remaining? Yeah, I want to remove ESP because I just can't think of that many ESP movies that I'd be interested in talking about. Or listeners, if you have any fucked up ESP films that you would like this to cover, please just give us a heads up. Let us know what you got. 
Yeah, definitely feel free to recommend categories or movies to us. We definitely take those seriously, and um, you might get to hear us talk about whatever your your choice is. So um, definitely send those our way. All right, with that, until next week when we will be talking about some sort of election-related movie, uh, you could follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares. Leland, do you have any last words? Thank you for your continued support. Beautiful. We'll talk to you all next week about an election. Have a good one, everybody.